You are listening to National Security Law Today. We're recording this episode of National Security Law Today on the day in which we celebrate Veterans Day. And it's on this day that we would like to honor our veterans. Make no mistake, we may disagree with one another on social media, but when the call goes out for Americans to serve, it is always and every time answered. Tonight, I would like to read a short passage from a book written by Vera Britton. She was a nurse during World War I, serving in France. After chemical weapons were deployed, what she saw was horrifying. But then she noticed something on the horizon in Camier, and it changed her sense of desperation. What she saw was us. They looked larger than ordinary men, their tall, straight figures in vivid contrast to the undersized armies of pale recruits to which we had grown accustomed. At first, I thought their spruce clean uniforms were those of officers, yet obviously they could not be officers, for there were too many of them. They seemed, as it were, Tommies in heaven. Had yet another regiment been conjured out of our depleted dominions? I wondered, watching them move with such rhythm, such dignity, such serene consciousness of self-respect. I knew the colonial troops so well, and they were different. Then I heard an excited exclamation from a group of sisters. Look, here come the Americans. I pressed forward with the others to watch the United States physically entering the war. So godlike, so magnificent, so splendidly unimpaired in comparison with the tired, nerve-wracked men. So these were our deliverers at last, marching up the road to Camier in the spring sunshine. There seemed to be hundreds of them, and in the fearless swagger of their proud strength, they looked a formidable bulwark against the peril looming from Amiens. This remains us. Listeners, but tonight we look out at a dark world with terrible conflict, but we do have Americans who serve now and will always serve. We've also learned on this podcast that education can bring us peace of mind and greater understanding. And with that in mind, as we watch Iran tangling in the Middle East, acting as puppet master, it's time we better understood Iran and our history with Iran. And so on that score, we're starting a series where we're going to learn more about Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the motivations of both of these nations. In order to start, we're going to re-air portions of two podcasts that we have done previously on experts on Iran. The first is part one of our podcast from 2022 with Professor Rohem Alvendi, who was kind enough to join us from London. We will also be re-airing part one of our interview from 2022 with Ray Take of the Council on Foreign Relations, who lives here in Washington. We apologize for what we consider poor audio of our interview with Mr. Take, but we're quite impressed with his knowledge, and we think it will be helpful to you listeners to hear him. And with a quick reminder that we're going to be celebrating Thanksgiving, and we will not be airing a new episode during that week. Please enjoy and learn from our prior podcasts with these two experts on a country that we need to understand better. 
So it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Raham Alvandi. He's an associate professor of international study at the London School of Economics and Political Science. He's also the author of a very wonderful book, Nixon, Kissinger, and the Shah, the United States and Iran in the Cold War. And this book was, of course, selected by the Financial Times as one of the best history books of 2014. If you've ever read the Times, it's discerning. So that's quite an endorsement. Most recently, he is the editor of The Age of, I'm going to butcher this, so he's going to help me, Arimer, the late Pahlavi Iran and its global entanglements. Dr. Alvandi, thank you so much for talking to me today. My pleasure. Great to be with you. Always happy to talk about my favorite topic, which is modern Iranian history. It's a fascinating topic. So introduce us, if you would, to the Pahlavis and how they came to rule Iran. The Pahlavis were the last royal dynasty of Iran, the last in a long line of dynasties stretching back two and a half thousand years. But they were not really particularly royal. I mean, the founder of the dynasty, Reza Shah, was a military officer in the Cossack Brigade, a military outfit that had been created by the Russians at the turn of the century. And he sort of rose through the ranks, was a very, very capable officer, and in 1921, he seized power in a bloodless military coup at a time when Iran was really in disarray. And he was encouraged to do so by the British, who wanted to sort of pull their chestnuts out of Iran in the aftermath of the Second World War and just wanted a strong ruler who'd bring some sort of stability to Iran. But he also had the support of most of the Iranian intelligentsia, who were very worried about the state of the country. I mean, Iran at that point in history was one of a handful of countries in Asia and Africa that were never colonized. Iran had managed to maintain its independence in the age of empires, in the age of European empires, and was sort of wedged in between the Russian empire to the north and the British empire in India and the Persian Gulf to the south and to the east. Iranian statesmen pretty much throughout the 18th, 19th, 20th century played this game of balancing the great powers off one against another in order to preserve Iran's very precarious um, independence. And they were pretty successful at doing that. And so the Pahlavis, really their reign from 1921 all the way through till the Iranian revolution of 1979, that was in many ways a sort of golden age for Iran in the sense that Iran was able to reestablish the control of the central government over all of its territory. It was a period of relative peace. I mean, Iran was not at war with any other country. You know, during that entire period, it was a period of rapid economic growth, huge demographic and social change. And it was a period in which Iran really for the first time since, oh, maybe going back to the Nadir Shah and his conquests of India in the 18th century, I mean, it was really the first time that Iran was able to actually project power beyond its borders and actually become a major global player on all sorts of issues, from regional security in the Persian Gulf to the politics of oil, to developing a nuclear industry, to, I mean, you name it. By the end of the 70s, the Iranians were sending their naval ships all the way to Australia 
and Mauritius. It was, it was a long way from the country that the Pahlavis inherited in 1921, where, where you had a central government that could barely function in Tehran, let alone anywhere else in the country. So it was, you know, the Pahlavi era was a period of tremendous change for Iran. And it was the sort of formative period. You know, the Iran of today is very much a product of that Pahlavi era. All right. Well, I'd ask you then to also educate our listeners, not all of whom will be familiar with the fact that there was an actual invasion of Iran by Britain and the Soviet Union. And the purpose for that, of course, as I believe that almost all things warring have to do with the economy, oil and rail access to the Persian Gulf and the Caspian Sea. Can you talk a bit about that, the Lend-Lease Agreement And I suspect many people will not have a working memory of the role Stalin played in Azerbaijan and how that would relate to these sort of light-footed skills that the Iranian dynasty was developing in order to manage this incredible tension, given their geography. Iran has a very, very sensitive geography. You know, it sits on the oil-rich Persian Gulf. It borders in the north with the Caspian Sea and the former Russian empire than the Soviet Union. And so it's sort of the crossroads between Asia uh, and Europe. And so it's, it strategically has always been very, very important. Iran itself has also, of course, been the center of world empires, you know, stretching back to the Achaemenids and the Sasanians and the Safavids and, and so on. So this is by no means a sort of backwater of global politics. This is somewhere where the fate of empires and nations has been determined. Once, you know, the Iranians at the the time of the Second World War, well, they had already been invaded once during the First World War and survived that. And now, uh, you know, by the time you get to the 1940s, they found themselves again in a very precarious situation. As uh, Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet Union, the, the oil of Iran became absolutely, you know, vital strategic prize for the allied powers. And on top of that, Iran's land access from the Persian Gulf through to the Soviet Union was vital for the allies to be able to supply the Soviet Union with the lend-lease aid um, that they needed in order to defend themselves against Hitler's Germany. The Iranians under Reza Shah, the founder of the Pahlavi dynasty, the father of the last Shah, their policy was one of neutrality. And if you can imagine from an Iranian point of view, they didn't particularly want the allies to win the war. The greatest threat to Iran came from the British Empire and from the Soviet Union. So an allied victory would not play out very well for Iran, whereas Germany was a distant power that had no colonial or imperial role in the Middle East. And so the sympathies of Iranians, and I think many people throughout the region, was with Germany. But the Iranians adopted an official position of neutrality, which meant that there were many German advisors in Iran. Iran was doing huge amounts of business with Germany. There's a lot of German investment in Iran. And this became a sort of pretext for the Allies to invade Iran in, in 1941 and to depose Reza Shah and install his very young son, 21-year-old son, Mohammad Reza Shah, on the throne of Iran. And it was really touch and go as to whether even the Pahlavi dynasty would survive or, in fact, whether Iran would survive the war. And it's really only thanks to very, very cunning diplomacy by Iranian statesmen who didn't really have much of a hand to play. I mean, they had a barely functioning government. They had no army. They had no wealth. All they had really was a a government on paper and and a sort of nominal 
international independence, you know, but they played that very well. At the Tehran conference in 1943, where Churchill and Roosevelt uh, and Stalin uh, were present in Iran, they secured an agreement from the big three that Iran would maintain its independence after the war and that the great powers would commit themselves to that. That was really the beginning of, of America, of America's role in Iran, which was a reluctant one. Because from the American point of view prior to that, Iran was really considered part of the British sphere of influence. But Franklin Roosevelt had a sense that as the world changes, as we go into this new era of the United Nations and of a new world order that's supposed to be based on the rule of international law, perhaps Iran can be an example of what the United States can do in the world. Here's a country, a very rich history, rich civilization, which has fallen on hard times, perhaps with American help, it can develop itself into a strong, independent country that would also act as a bulwark against Soviet penetration down into the Persian Gulf region. And, and that was an accomplishment for Iranian statesmen who had been sort of trying to entice Americans into Iran, thinking that, you know, the United States is this distant superpower long way away from Iran. So that's a, that's a good ally to have and that can help Iran preserve its independence against the British and the Soviets. That was basically the strategy of the Pahlavis of Mohammad Reza Shah throughout his reign, is to look to the United States as this distant superpower that could help Iran achieve its aspirations within the region. And he was largely successful at doing that, although not without tremendous cost as well. That's a lovely description. It's a visual as well, a government on paper. So that explains how the relationship began. But I'd like to move forward in time just a bit. There were two coups that occurred, one in 1953 and another in 1958. I think the largest amount of discussion is always around what happened in 1953. Please educate us on what precipitated those coups, what they involved, and sort of what you perceive based on your obviously extensive lifetime of research, was the United States' role in both? Well, Iran was in a very, very precarious situation in the 50s, late 40s and 50s. I mean, first of all, the Soviet Union had occupied northern Iran during the Second World War, and Stalin basically outstayed his welcome. Under the agreements that the Allies had signed with Iran, the, the Allied powers were supposed to vacate Iran six months after the end of the hostility six months after the peace. So the British and the Americans left and the Soviets were still there in northern Iran. And that, that was really one of the first major crises of the Cold War. In fact, it was the first international crisis that was put before the UN Security Council after it was created, was the Iran crisis. And really, with the help of the Truman administration, the Iranians were able to force Stalin to withdraw from northern Iran. And it was a bit of a humiliation for the Soviet Union and for Stalin. And it was exactly the kind of balancing strategy that the Iranians intended to play in the context of the Cold War. You have to remember, Iran had a 1,500 kilometer border with the Soviet Union. This huge superpower just across its northern borders. At that point in the 50s, you know, the United States had no presence in the Middle East. This was a British, still very much a British sphere of influence. And the British controlled the Iranian oil industry in the south of the country. You know, they owned the whole of the Iranian oil industry, what used to be called the Anglo-Persian Oil Company, what's today a BP. So the Americans were a very attractive option for the Iranians as an ally. 
there was a great deal of sympathy in the United States for Iran, particularly during the Truman administration. They saw Iranian nationalism as a, a liberal phenomenon. They saw sort of Iranian aspirations for liberal constitutionalism as very much in line with the ideals of the American Revolution, of the American Constitution. The US was quite sympathetic. There was a lot of economic aid that went to Iran, military assistance that went to Iran. But as the Cold War heated up, there was more and more of a fear that the Communist Party in Iran and the Soviet Union just across the border to the north might come to dominate Iran and take control of its very important oil reserves. I mean, just to give put this in context, the Iranian oil refinery in Abadan, the huge Iranian oil refinery that was built by the British, this was the single most valuable overseas possession of the British government. And it was the largest oil refinery in the world. And this was a hugely important strategic asset. Unfortunately, when the Iranians nationalized their oil industry under the premiership of Mohammad Mossadegh, who was a very liberal democratic MP who had always advocated for Iran's independence and for a constitutional sort of parliamentary democracy in Iran. This sparked a crisis with Britain, who of course didn't want to give up Iranian oil, which was incredibly important, lucrative asset for them at a time when the British economy was doing extremely poorly. And so the Americans were confronted with this situation where they had to choose sides between their British allies who were struggling, British empire that was in retreat, and Iran, a country with a strong nationalist leader, Mossadegh, that was trying to assert its independence from the British empire. And under Truman, they very much sided with Iran and tried to pressure their British allies to reach a deal with Mossadegh. But with the change of administration in the United States, the election of the Eisenhower administration, with the Dulles brothers coming into government, John Foster Dulles, Alan Dulles, there was a change in, in the point of view in Washington. There was a fear that if this crisis was allowed to go on, if the Iranian government became crippled, that this would create an opportunity for the Iranian communists with the support of the Soviet Union to seize power. And so they basically backed a British plan to overthrow Mossadegh, a covert operation that was codenamed by the CIA Operation Ajax, Operation Boot by the Special Intelligence Service. And it was the sort of original sin of the United States in Iran, you know, that the fact that the US chose to support British imperial interests in Iran over a liberal democratic government that was simply trying to assert Iran, Iran's sovereignty, you know, that was a huge blow to the prestige of the US in Iran, which had always been seen as a country that was on the right side of history, that was different to the European imperial and colonial powers. And so there was this kind of disillusionment with, with America after the 1953 coup. That sort of carried on into the 1950s and 1960s. But of course, you know, that was also the height of the Cold War, the Berlin crises, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And for Iran, there was really no option of being a neutral state because Iran was a frontline state in the Cold War in the same way that Germany was a frontline state in Europe. You know, Iran was on the front lines of the Cold War in the, in the Middle East. There was a real possibility that what happened in, I don't know, in Romania or Hungary could also happen in Iran. Iranian nationalists, for better or worse, still look to the US as a potential ally against the threat of 
of communism and of the Soviet Union. So in 1958, when in the midst of pretty severe domestic political and economic crisis, there was talk of a military coup by General Barani, who was the head of the army's um, intelligence section, G2 intelligence section. The coup plotters approached the Americans and said, you know, how would you feel if we, if we do this, if we remove the Shah or, or if we force the Shah to appoint a, a reformist government, you know, what would be the attitude of the US? And the Americans, by that point, um, we're talking about the Eisenhower administration, you know, they got very nervous and they were very skeptical that there was really any alternative to the Shah in Iran. And they tipped off the Shah. And so uh, that coup didn't get anywhere. And in fact, Barani was arrested and the plotters were rounded up. But the view was that, look, you know, Iran's looking pretty shaky. And the Shah is by no means safe on his throne. And if you think about all the monarchies in the Middle East that were toppled throughout the 1950s and 60s, in Iraq in 1958, in Yemen in 1962, um, before that, in, of course, Nasser's coup in Egypt in 1952. So there was a sense that the dominoes were falling in the region and the tide was turning in favor of these radical revolutionary Republican regimes. But the Shah managed to hold on with the help of the United States, particularly with the help of the Eisenhower administration. A lot of money flowed into the Iranian army. The Iranian security service, Sabak, was established in 1957 with the help of the US. And so the Shah was able to consolidate his position. But that also meant an increasingly autocratic regime where all power was more and more and more concentrated in the hands of one person. And of course, that kind of regime also has its risks and fragility and drawbacks, um, which didn't really become evident until 1978-79. Let's move just a bit forward in time, though. President Kennedy had some views over what was needed in Iran, but he was assassinated before he was able to realize what he had wanted. Can you talk a little bit about how the relationship changed in terms of the view of the Pahlavi dynasty during his short tenure as president? Well, Ke Kennedy, you know, was a very different man to the sort of Eisenhower, Dulles generation. You know, he was a much younger man. He had much more progressive views about the third world. He saw nationalism in the third world as a force that did not have to be antagonistic towards the United States and that actually it was in the interest of the United States to kind of be on the right side of history in places like Iran or in India or in Egypt. And he, unlike many of the Republicans at the time who saw these kinds of forces of nationalism as natural allies of the Soviet Union or sort of bordering on communism, you know, Kennedy didn't see things in, in, in those terms. And he spoke of the the new frontier. And his argument was that the United States should play the role of aiding the development of these countries and ameliorating the conditions in the third world that would give rise to communist regimes. So one of the things that Kennedy, you know, really strongly advocated for in many places was, for example, land reform in many of these kind of agrarian economies. And so in Iran, they, they did the same. I mean, there was a lot of he did bring pressure on the Shah to carry out social and economic reforms. But at the end of the day, there was also a sense that, well, there's not really much of a political alternative to the Shah. And if we put too much pressure on the Shah, we risk actually toppling him and he may well be replaced by somebody who's even less desirable, you know, perhaps a, a military figure 
they didn't really have much faith in the sort of Mossadegh type Iranian nationalists who might take over from the Shah. And so even though Kennedy did put some pressure at the end of the day, it was really ultimately a continuation of business as usual with the condition that the Shah would carry out some kind of reforms, which the Shah called his white revolution. These were a whole series of reforms that were implemented that included land reform, giving women the right to vote, literacy programs, um, many, many sort of important reforms that did actually have a pretty significant impact on Iranian society, but also generated quite a lot of backlash, uh, particularly from religious conservatives. So these reforms are undertaking the white revolution, land reform, women's rights, things that we associate positively in the United States with an advancement in terms of a culture as well as democracy and empowering a population to make better decisions than they might otherwise. I imagine in Iran, the view of the Pahlavis was going to change because they had such a grip on power. But into this walks Henry Kissinger. What can you tell us about how Henry Kissinger changed the relationship with Iran and what impact he had as a statesman on the relationship between Iran and the United States and the Soviet Union and its other neighbors? The Iran that Kissinger faced when he came into office in 1969 was so different from the Iran that I was just talking about, you know, the Iran of the 1950s or even of the early 60s. For one thing, the Shah had completely consolidated his position within Iran. There was really very little domestic opposition left. Most of the opposition was either in prison or in exile. Ayatollah Khomeini was in exile by this point in Iraq. Iran's oil income was steadily increasing, and that gave the Iranian state a lot of resources to be able to carry out the development plans that the Shah had, and also the ability to purchase huge quantities of American weapons which gave the Shah more and more independence and freedom on the international stage. At the same time, there was a kind of perception in the era of Vietnam that the United States was in decline. And so the relative power of these two countries has shifted. Iran wasn't anymore this kind of client state that the Americans could dictate to, or it it was now more, I would argue, a partner in the Cold War. And so this was a godsend for Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger because they were trying to avoid any more Vietnams. The Nixon Nixon doctrine was one of not intervening in every third world conflict, but instead relying on local partners like Iran, like Indonesia, like Brazil, um, various other countries, you know, giving them the means to be able to roll back communist influence or Soviet influence in their own regions. And the Shah was very, very keen to play that role in the in the Persian Gulf region and in the wider Middle East. And so those three men, you know, there was a real meeting of minds between them and a genuine kind of mutual respect. At one level, when it comes to these grand geostrategic visions, but also at a personal level, because you have to remember the Shah really, really resented the sort of Kennedy and what he called his Harvard boys, the sort of elites of the East Coast in the United States who thought they knew better than him, you know, how he should run his country. And and these were the same people that Nixon and Kissinger despised, you know, and the same people who had 
heavily criticized them for, for the Vietnam War. And so there, you can see in the tone of the, the, the meetings that they have that this is more than just a, a relationship of convenience. I mean, this is a genuine, I would say, friendship in a way. So yeah, so that really blossomed in the, in the 1970s. And Kissinger was absolutely crucial to that. He, he understood the Shah, he understood Iran's ambitions, and he wanted to encourage them. And he faced a lot of opposition from within the ranks of the State Department and Department of Defense and the CIA, all of whom were very nervous about this idea of putting America's eggs all in one basket. There was a particular concern in the Department of Defense that, you know, with these huge contracts, military contracts going to Iran, this huge number of American military personnel in Iran helping the Iranians run these very advanced, you know, weapon systems. What would happen if Iran actually found itself in a war with, say, Iraq or or one of the other Soviet-backed regimes in the region? You know, would the United States get dragged into another Vietnam-style conflict? But really, the Shah had such incredible resources at his disposal that he could make demands of the Nixon administration that, you know, that he couldn't have done at any previous point in history. And it was very, very difficult to say no to him at that point. But, you know, that began to shift, of course, with Watergate, with Nixon's resignation, and and also with the general kind of disillusionment within, within the United States, with the kind of realpolitik foreign policy of Henry Kissinger, that tended to completely ignore human rights concerns and to privilege completely these kind of Cold War geostrategic considerations. And so even though during the Carter administration, there was not really a a huge shift in the substance of US-Iran relations. I mean, the weapons were still being sold to Iran, massive new contracts were signed, the oil was still flowing to the United States. But at the level of rhetoric and certainly at the level of public perception, there was a sense that something had shifted from the Nixon-Kissinger era. And so Iran, you know, Iran became very much tied up in those big changes that were taking place within the United States in the 1970s. Our guest today is Ray Takei of the Council on Foreign Relations. Before his tenure at CFR, he was a fellow in International Security Studies at Yale University, a fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, a professor at the National War College, and a professor and director of studies at the Near East and South Asia Center at the National Defense University. Mr. Taki holds a PhD from Oxford University in the UK, and he's written extensively on Iran and on U.S. policy toward the Middle East. He's testified several times before various committees of the United States Senate, some of which we can hyperlink in the notes to this podcast. And he's appeared as an Iran expert on a variety of thoughtful, by the way, television programs, including PBS NewsHour. Take has served as senior Iran advisor to Dennis Ross, the former director of policy and planning at the United States State Department. And he did that in 2009. And Take was born in Tehran. So he's not an outside commentator. He's also the author of several well-written pieces on Iran and a book entitled The Last Shah, America, Iran, and the Fall of the Pahlavi Dynasty. Ray Takei, I can't pronounce it exactly right, but thanks for coming in this evening. We're really glad you're here. Thanks for having me. All right. Now, as an expert, I'm just going to open the floor to you. What we need today, and we hope to hear from you, is a brief history of Iran, its governmental structure over the years, because I know our last guest described it as a democracy. 
and how it came to be known now as the Islamic State? Well, in terms of the structure of the Islamic Republic that came about in 1979, it is an amalgam of unelected institutions and elected institutions. And as you would understand, uh, unelected institutions hold most of the power. There's an office of the Supreme Leader that is occupied since 1989 by Ali Khamenei that essentially has the last word on all things, legislation, office uh, candidates for public office, and so forth. There's a guardian council whose responsibility is to vet legislation and candidates to make sure they meet Islamic standards and have the relevant credentials. But there also coexists a measure of representation with elected parliament and presidency and city councils and so forth. Those elections have become far less competitive in recent years with the last presidential election in 2021 being essentially a very stage-managed affair the elections always were useful for the Islamic Republic because they acted as a safety valve. Today, they are no longer doing so. So it is essentially a system whereby there are a lot of checks and balances on the rights of people to express their opinion. This is different than a monarchy. In the monarchy, of course, all power was situated in the monarch. And during the reign of Reza, Muhammad Reza Shah Pahavi, the last monarch of the dynasty, really all decisions were made by one person. And the system was very, very personalized form of dictatorship. The Islamic Republic is still government of institutions, although most of those institutions are held by people who do not really respond to the will of the population. Okay, but historically, you mentioned that it was also a monarchy, and it's also had a prime minister and other types of functioning governments over time. Focusing, if we could, only on um, the time period over the last, let's say, 100 years, what structures have been in place and how well have they worked, sort of given the discovery of oil that occurred, I guess, when in the early 20th century in Iran? During the time of the monarchy, the institutions of Iran went through some change. In the early part of the Pahlavi dynasty, 1941 to about 1960, the system was, as you mentioned, there were prime ministers, there were parliaments, and actually there was some division of power. The parliaments had a mind of their own. The prime ministers essentially were people who wielded authority independent of the monarch. This was not a representative democracy, but it was elite pluralism in a sense that the aristocratic class still maintained control over key institution of parliament, the cabinets, and the prime minister. So there was a division of power. That system actually worked very well uh, during the early parts of the monarchy. And it was flexible in terms of dealing with domestic affairs. And it was quite ingenious in terms of dealing with foreign relations. That's the system that breaks down in the 1960s with the rise of a more of a personalized authoritarian regimes and the parliament and others being reduced to rubber stamp organization, and the elite changes. Instead of the landed aristocratic elite and the merchant class, the process of modernization led to rise of technocratic class, which were better at mastering Western development paradigms than understanding the nuances of the Persian nation itself. The currency of exchange in Iran at that time became access to Western education, and so on and so forth, as opposed to kind of the sensibility that the previous aristocratic class demonstrated. How did oil change all that? Well, oil actually bought substantial amount of revenue to the state and was generated from outside, in the sense it wasn't in the process of taxation. It created a patronage network, it created massive corruption, but it also spearheaded development. 
there was a lot of progress made in terms of education, infrastructure, urbanization, industrialization, and also a very heavy emphasis on military buildup, which was costly and unnecessary. So it was a mixed bag in a sense that oil allowed the monarchy kind of to be untethered by domestic constraints in terms of expenditures. But it also, one has to say, led to creation of universities, creation of healthcare centers and so forth. So it, it did do the country a significant amount of good. I guess as we've come to look back on this time, we do see that Iran didn't actually own its oil as a practical matter. And I think that is something that I'd like you to elaborate on, because looking at it now, one has to wonder how that occurred, because it is theirs for extraction. It does appear, at least to somebody like me who does not know anything close to the amount that you do, that it had a certain corrupting influence on and um, steered who was in charge and how the politics there would unfold in the immediate aftermath of, you know, significant extraction beginning by the British. The British obtained the concession on developing Iranian oil in early 1900s. And that led to establishment of what was called Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, AIOC. So the British company, uh, which was uh, the British government, was a large shareholder in AIOC. So this is a relationship between a private company, British government, and Iranian government. And the British at that time had the extraction and marketing of the Iranian oil. And in exchange, they would provide Iran this percentage of the revenues that they obtained. Now, that percentage was paltry. At some point, AIOC paid more in taxes to the British government than it did in terms of revenues to Iran. It was an exploitative arrangement. And it gone on for a long time because, as you said, the British, along with others, their influence in Iran and their penetration of the Iranian oil sector led to corruption of the Iranian politics, paying off newspaper editors, parliamentarians, and so forth. So the British essentially became an aspect of Iran's internal life an aspect of Iranian politics. Uh, all decisions had to be made in terms of the consultations with the British, who was a British ally, who was a nationalist, and so forth. So that level of external intervention in Iran had a, a significant influence on the politics and the, the sociology of the Iranian aristocratic class in the sense that they were so intertwined with the British. Almost every question had to be in some way debated or consulted with the British. The British ambassador was one of the most important people in Iran at that time. So in that sense, the oil, the introduction of oil, the discovery of oil, and the selling of oil led to compromise of Iranian sovereignty by a very heavy dose of British intervention in Iranian politics as a means of maintaining that economic asset. The Abadan refinery that, the, that was built by British and the Iranians was the largest refinery in the world for a very long time. The British Navy required it, and eventually the rehabilitation of the European economies in the aftermath of the Second War required access to cheap energy supplies. So in that sense, Iran was also critical in the efficacy of Marshall Plan and uh, European economic rehabilitation. Now, as we're looking right now at Iran and its supplying of various weapons items to Russia, I don't think a lot of people understand that Iran seems to have had what is in reality a centuries-old relationship with 
Russia, including when it was part of the USSR. Now, is that correct? And if so, I would ask you to elaborate on how that came to be and what that history is. Well, Iran and Russia are neighbors. In that sense, they have had a long-term relationship, at times quite a contentious one. For a long time, it was said that the Russian czars coveted warm water ports in Iran. Uh, during the Second War, Iran was actually occupied by the Russians and the British, and at some point by the Americans. Persian corridor is what Churchill referred to it, and that was essentially a means of supplying the Soviet Union during the war. The Western Front was obviously preoccupied, and the port of Vladivostok in the east was often frozen. So you had essentially an occupation of Iran. The Soviets essentially established communist parties. That was the today Communist Party. That was one of the largest and most important political parties in Iran. That was in many ways beholden to the Soviet Union, as we now know with the archival record. Uh, in the aftermath of the war, the Soviet Union under Stalin's regime essentially occupied northern Iran and refused to leave in 1946 as the arrangement mandated the British and the Americans did withdraw their troops as the wartime agreement suggested and demanded. And there was a talk of the Russians even taking up a whole chunk of Iranian territory, the Azerbaijan region. Uh, I would say during the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, the relationship between Soviet Union and Iran dramatically improved. It became a trade partnership. It became a relationship that they had. The Shah had largely destroyed the Communist Party within Iran, much to the chagrin and acceptance of the Soviet Union. So the relationship between the two parties becomes better. And as a matter of fact, the Soviets did not want the Shah's monarchy to collapse because they didn't know what the successor regime was and what it would look like. That was a conservative monarchy to their south, which they were comfortable with in many respects. During the Islamic Republic period, the relationship became very interesting after the collapse of the Soviet Union, in a sense that it became a more of a mercantile relationship. Iran was interested in surplus military equipment, which the Russian Federation had plenty of. It was interested in atomic energy supplies and, and infrastructure from Russia. And the Russians needed hot currency. So that relationship became more commercial. In the past 10 years, this has gained strategic debt. The two parties have cooperated in the Syrian civil war in terms of allowing President Assad to regain power. And recently, of course, with the invasion of Ukraine by the Russians, it has gone to another level of intimacy. And right now, there's a lot of discussion within the Iranian political circles, perhaps Russian as well, about a new sort of a alliance, if you would, of Eastern powers, the, United, the Iranians, the Russians, and the Chinese, all of whom are subject to Western political intervention. So this, this idea of a sort of a new access of resistance. And this is a relationship that is novel at this respect. It's the first time Iran has deployed military forces, military equipment, and advisors outside the Middle East in terms of supplies to the Russian Federation. So in some way, Iran has become a partner of Russia in the war in Ukraine against the Western alliance and against NATO. And that is not an uncontroversial position within Iran. Even today, 40 former diplomats in Iran signed a letter saying that this is not what we should be doing. This level of intervention against the West, against NATO, how does this serve our interests and our foreign policy should be about national interests and not these particular adventures 
But nevertheless, you begin to see certain commonality of perspective between the Russian Federation and the Islamic Republic today. Both of them tend to explain their predicament and their international policy to the prism of conspiracy theories. So that sort of ties to bind them together in this. Okay, and on that score, I'm going to ask you to clarify a couple of things for our listeners as well. One of the things I think is important to sort of explain, which is the relationship between the Saudis and the Iranians. And I will tell you that when I speak to my friends who have their roots in Iran, I mean, they have certain terms that they use to describe the Saudis, sort of the Beverly Hillbillies. And the Saudis are becoming significantly invested once again in Europe. They're investing right now in Credit Suisse, for example, uh, if you've been tracking that today to a point where they will own up to 30% of one of the most revered and large banking institutions in the world. Can you please explain how the sort of threat or menace is perceived in terms of KSA and the relationship with Iran? As you mentioned, there's always been some cultural stereotypes that are used by both parties. And as with most cultural stereotypes, they're unsophisticated and unwarranted. During the time of the monarchy, the relationship with Saudi Arabia was actually workable in the sense both parties had common interests. They both were against Soviet penetration of the Gulf of the Middle East, and they both had alliance with the United States. As a matter of fact, and one of the ironies of history, the Nixon administration had developed a sort of a secret plan of Iranian intervention in Saudi Arabia should the monarchy collapse. Because in the 1970s, when people looked at the monarchies of Iran and Saudi Arabia, most of them thought that the monarchy in the Saudi Arabia would not prove durable. And they were sort of hoping that the Iranian monarchy, the sort of bulwark of stability, would rescue the Saudi state and preserve its energy resources should the monarchy collapse in Riyadh and you had disorders. In the aftermath of the revolution, that relationship has been very poor. It has to do with a number of factors. First of all, Iran's Islamic Republic has denounced the legitimacy of monarchical order, not just the monarchy within Iran, but the monarchy writ large as a sort of a, as a sort of a anachronistic institution. And that does not have any standing in modern, uh, modern times. Second of all, these are both governments that to some extent establish their legitimacy or anchor their legitimacy on a transnational Islam. Iranians by export of their revolutionary message, and Saudis by being custodians of the holy places. So they both anchor the legitimacy to some extent on religion, and that creates competitive life. And then you have, of course, recently, a very significant degree of heightened tensions between the two. In both countries, you have the rise of a very conservative government in Iran, and in Saudi Arabia, the rise of a fairly impetuous monarch, Prince Salman. That rivalry has played itself out catastrophically in Yemen, all over the Middle East, the, the two powers are competing for influence. This most catastrophic manifestation has obviously been in Yemen. I would say throughout the past couple of years, there have been diplomatic efforts to mend ties between the two states. And that diplomatic effort has been mediated by the Iraqis, which may be one of the reasons why it hasn't worked. But there have been efforts in the past of lowering the temperature. But at this particular point, they're both locked into a degree of rivalry that has not been seen for many years. The position of the Iranian government is that the protests against it are provoked by external actors. And those external actors are the United States 
something called the Zionist entity in Saudi Arabia. And there periodically other countries get added to it. Britain, French intelligence, uh, never Germans, but always the three countries, Israel, United States, and Saudi Arabia, and particularly a Saudi-funded broadcasting and media outlet in London, or, uh, Iran International, which has a significant degree of audience within Iran. The, the fact that the Iranian government explains this internal predicament as externally generated has created a new degree of tension between the two countries. Let's talk for a minute about sort of the indelible image in most Americans' memory, which is the image of the Ayatollah Khomeini. He is, I think, viewed by many Americans as a villain, a terrorist, and unquestionably the kidnapping of embassy personnel was a terrorist act and the holding of them for a year. But who was the Ayatollah um, in terms of his opposition to the Shah, and how did he go from an exiling to a leader, and how do his successors compare in terms of his appeal? Ayatollah Khomeini was in some way an innovator, he was a proponent of a certain idea, which essentially meant that the clerics have a right to rule, direct assumption of political power by a clerical class. That is not a new idea in, in Shi Islam's jurisprudence, but it is not the majority position. So in one sense, he was a very ardent proponent of the idea that religion should not just inform politics, but clerics should actually rule institutions of the state. And a, a fairly unprecedented assumption of power, and he gave it some sort of a theological standing. And, and the blueprint of the Islamic Republic was really a series of lectures that he gave while exiled in Iraq in the 1970-71, which became known as Islam, Hukumat Islami, Islamic government. He was an anti-American, very much in that sense nationalistic, in terms of his opposition to closer assumption, a closer relationship between the United States and Iran that became very visible in the 1960s. He was always profoundly anti-Israel and indeed anti-Semitic. And that was another one of his objections to the monarchy, namely his subtle relationship with Israel. But he was also innovator. He was a coalition builder. He managed to appeal to the modern middle class by talking about anti-imperialism, by appealing to the student movement in terms of northern exploitation of the South. So in some way, he couches rhetoric, not just in religious lexicon, but in sort of a north-south divide that was very popular in Western and Iranian universities in the 1960s and 70s, namely that the capitalist industrial community is exploiting the natural resources of the South for its own industrial benefit, being oil being an example. And when the revolution broke out, he became a very central figure in it, I think primarily because he was exiled. While all the other political actors with Iran were prone to compromise with the monarchy, because that was their situation, they were within the country, he was a maximalist. He called for overthrow of the monarchy. And he saw no reason why he should not essentially embrace a maximalist idea because he was in exile. Why should he offer a compromise message? Uh, at one point, one of the Iranian opposition figures went to Paris, his last place of exile, and said, you know, we have an agreement with the Shah for a constitutional form of government. So we all think we should sign on to that. And he said, well, you know, when I look at the street, I don't see anybody calling for a constitutional form of government. 
I see him calling for Islamic government, so I'm not interested in compromise. He was uncompromising, indifferent to human life, and a very much an ideologue who was capable and willing to sacrifice large number of people to meet his political objectives. But it should not go unnoticed that he was also an intellectual innovator in a sense that he managed to refashion Islamic canons to produce a governing template and managed to market that template to a modern middle class by talking about representation, even gender equality, and, and so the democratic features to religion. How his predecessor, he's only had one, one successor, Ali Khamenei, compared to him. Ali Khamenei is similarly a person of intellectual suppleness, tactical dexterity. Uh, he doesn't have the same charismatic authority. He doesn't have the same theological erudition, but he's in power for a long time, and he knows the mechanics of government. He's more involved in administration of government than Khomeini was, who was really in power for eight, nine years before he died. And so the administrative functioning of government, the bureaucratic interagency process bored him. Well, Ali Khomeini is very much a man of administrative state. He's a deep state guy. <laughs> Khomeini was more of a guide and so on. But he had an undisputed authority, which his successor doesn't. Now, to be fair, his successor has been in power for 32, 33 years, while people's in movie power for eight, nine years. So that's the difference between them. All right. And thank you for listening to National Security Law today. You can find us on Facebook. We're still calling it Twitter. Sorry, folks. Threads, as well as other platforms under the handle at ABA NATSAC. If you have thoughts you want to share with us, you can reach us by email the old fashioned way. We're reachable at National Security at American Bar. Org. Please be sure to share this episode with a friend. Remember to rate us when you can. Also, have an intelligent conversation with somebody who doesn't see things the way you do about national security and the laws that govern us. A writer and producer is me, Elisa Poteet. I'm always here in my individual capacity. Francis Berkham is our editor and my co-producer. Rebecca Salito is our program manager. My other co-producer is Holly McMahon, along with the amazing leaders of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you at the conference. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.